Welcome to Kindreds, a podcast for soul sisters. I'm Ashley Peterson. And I'm Katie Zay. We're kindred spirits talking all things faith, feminism, and friendship from our homes in the South. Hey, Ashley. Hey, Katie. Welcome to part two of our conversation about grief. Our last episode focused on our own experiences with grief and grieving, what it feels like, the different types of grief. We talked about individual acute grief and collective grief. So to our listeners, if you haven't listened to that episode, you should. It's not as sad as it sounds, I promise. It's true. I was surprised at how not sad it was. This one might be a little heavier. We'll we'll see how yeah, it goes. Maybe. For part two, we will be turning the conversation toward support and healing. Like, what does it mean to heal from grief? Mm-hmm. Is it something we do alone or is healing a communal effort? What does support look like for grieving people? Where do we mm-hmm. go for that kind of support? And how do we support people we love who are grieving? These are some of the things we want to talk about today. Oh, yes. I have been thinking a lot about support specifically support within my faith communities these last few months. And I know I've shared about this a little. I should probably give some context to what the last few weeks of my grandmother's life were like for me and my family. While my grandmother was dying, there were like these different stages. So my grandma, we called her nanny. She went to the emergency room for something that we thought would ultimately be minor. But it turned out she was admitted for pneumonia. And then over the following weeks, her lungs healed from the pneumonia, but she never regained full lung function. And she couldn't breathe on her own. Eventually, she kept needing more and more oxygen. She was awake, alert. Her heart was strong. Everything else was working but her lungs. And the doctors told her that she was going to start needing different breathing machines, including ventilators, which she tried. And then ultimately declined. So as a family, we helped her make end-of-life decisions and had to help her decide what she wanted to do, had to learn to kind of just follow her lead. And one of the good things is that we were all able to gather to say goodbye. But it was a very intense few weeks with a lot of really (laughs) – high highs and low lows. So over when I I guess when I'm talking about stages over the course of a few weeks, I experienced everything from shock to hope, denial, acceptance, and then hope again when the doctors would try some new treatments and then acceptance again, and then finally loss and sorrow. And those few weeks were surreal because I felt like I'd been removed from my life. Like Nothing outside of the hospital existed. It's like emotional whiplash. Yes, emotional whiplash. And I appreciated you so much during that time because I just let you know what I was going through. And you would send me these texts that were just like, I'm thinking about you today. I'm holding space for you today. And I knew I didn't have to respond, but I knew you were thinking about me. And that meant a lot. If I've never said that to you, like it it meant a lot. So... While I was there, this was something different for me. I have not interacted with a lot of clergy in a ministerial sense. Mm-hmm. I, I interact with a lot of clergy as colleagues, mm-hmm. but in a like person in need of 
ministering to or pastoral care. I It's been a while since I've interacted that way with clergy, but during that time in the hospital, I remember the chaplain came by the day we first learned that my grandmother's prognosis was bad and she was not going to recover. That was a really hard day, and he was really nice, but we were kind of reeling from the shock, and I remember just wanting him to leave so that my mom and I could have some privacy and fall apart together. But our family's pastors also came almost every day, which I really appreciated. Mostly they came to pray with my grandmother because that's what she wanted. And I think if we'd asked them to help us think through those end-of-life decisions, they would have they would have done that. But even though I don't actively participate in my family's church anymore, I do feel like those pastors were there in the trenches with us during that time. And I just have a lot of gratitude for that. Just their presence, their witnessing. They weren't uncomfortable with the physicality of what was happening in that room with my grandmother and also with me and my family. I mean, we were crying a lot and they were just really comfortable with that. And we didn't have to be awkward and embarrassed. And so it's funny, like the prayer stuff, was not important to me at all, but what I remember and was comforted by was just being human together. So I'm still processing everything we went through during that time, but I'm curious, Katie, as a pastor, what is your perspective on how our faith communities handle death, and how are you trained on all of this? Hmm. Like, I'm an expert. (laughs) I'm not. Yes, Yes, please represent all pastors from all faith traditions for us now. As you were talking about those last weeks with your grandmother and the ups and downs of that, I was thinking about how maybe what would have been more helpful to you and your family would have been a death doula. I did not know that existed. What is a death doula? Interesting. I've learned about them over the last few years. It's very similar to how a birth doula is there to accompany a birthing person and and their partner if they're there through the birth experience as kind of a coach. Mm. Death doulas do the same thing. They are trained in accompanying people who are dying and providing support to their families. And they do lots of different kinds of things around that. That could be, you know, things to be thinking about in terms of the preparation, you know, like legal things, but also just providing that emotional support. And doctors, hospital chaplains, and clergy are familiar with death and dying. It's part of what Mm -hmm. they do. But it's not necessarily what they're experts in. Mm-hmm. And with something as powerful and unpredictable and emotional as death is, we all ought to have access to someone who can guide us through that and who is specifically dedicated to showing up for for you in that moment, not an entire group of hospital patients or congregants, right? Like those pastors might have been making the rounds in the hospital to other families in the church who also have someone dying or who's sick. I can guarantee that they were probably seeing other people besides your family. Oh my gosh. I feel terrible that that has never occurred to me, that we were not the only people they were visiting. No, it shouldn't make you feel (laughs) terrible. But you're probably right. No, I just mean that I didn't think about it that way. Because you were consumed in your own process, which makes sense. And that's why I think the death doula model, very much like a birth doula, who is I am dedicated mm-hmm. to this person for this time. Wow. I'm here to write it out with you and not necessarily having to tend to a bunch of other people. I just think that that would have been wow, so comforting to have had someone who's an expert in that. So anyway, I w- want to go back to your question about um, 
clergy and our, our education about this. So one of the requirements for a lot, not all of Christian clergy, is called clinical pastoral education or CPE. And that usually takes place in a hospital or sometimes a hospice environment over mm-hmm. a summer or a semester. And students are kind of like interns as chaplains, and they process what goes on in their groups. And it's a very intense time. So probably the hospital chaplain would have had to go through several years of that training to serve in that kind of role. And to my knowledge, this is primarily how pastors are trained and how to provide spiritual care to people who are grieving. Um, My situation is a little bit different. I didn't have to do clinical pastoral education to get ordained, but Instead, I've talked about this before, I did my work as a volunteer in an abortion clinic where I sort of did that on-the-job learning of how to hold presence for people during a really difficult experience where there were sometimes feelings of grief and loss. So it's pretty limited to that. Um, Maybe some pastoral care classes touch on it, but it's definitely – I think it's something that you learn on the job more than you do in school. Yeah. And again, clergy, we're trained as generalists in a lot of ways. We have so many different roles that we're expected to play out. And especially if someone's a, a solo pastor or maybe just a two-person clergy team, if you think about all the things that clergy do, they are providing right. pastoral care, but they're preaching, they're administrators, they're running a staff, um, all the other things they have to do. So it can't necessarily be their main focus, you know? Right. And some clergy are going to be better suited to different roles. Absolutely. Than others. So some are going to be great administrators, maybe not so great hospital chaplains. Right. Which is when, yeah. you know, bigger churches will often have someone who's specifically yeah. there for pastoral care, you know, or mm. community care. So that being said, I do think that churches handle death better than a lot of the other institutions that we have, although that's not saying a whole lot. <laughs> The standards are really low. <laughs> yeah. But we do have these things. We have rituals mm-hmm. for death. A lot of faith communities have volunteer teams that do this kind of specific hospitality and care work around funerals and memorial services. And pastors are on call for losses in their communities. I often see in my clergy groups, you know, people who are trying to go on vacation, <laughs> they'll have oh, to find no. someone else to be on call for them in case there's a, a pastoral emergency. And yeah. Faith communities can be really good at tending to the immediate loss related to the death of a loved one and helping people navigate. Yeah. Yeah. That immediate loss, I think, is when faith communities do a really, really good job. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking about, okay, what are the other ways that we honor grief or talk about grief throughout the, the liturgical year? And one thing I've never gone to, but I think is a great idea, is the idea of the Blue Christmas Liturgy. That's held around the summer or the winter solstice, which is like why Christmas is celebrated when it is. Yeah, but, I've never heard of this. Yeah, yeah. It's the idea that, you know, Christmas time is not always a happy time for everybody for lots of different reasons. <laughs> yes, for lots of reasons. Right, yes. right. And the winter solstice is the longest night of the year. Mm-hmm. And so these services center on the fact that this is a, a hard time for people for lots of reasons. And not the least of which is some experience of, of grief, whether it's immediate within the last year or longer. And so I appreciate the congregations that offer this kind of alternative or addition to the season of Advent, which is a season of hope. Um, and then, of yeah. course, Christmas is very, very joyous. 
And then following that, not long after, there's the season of Lent, which begins on, with Ash Wednesday. So we've got death right there, right? Like the reminder mm-hmm. that we are dust and to dust we will return. And it's these 40 days of preparing for the death of Jesus. So it's marked with that kind of solemnness that feels mm-hmm. more conducive to the, these feelings of grief that we have in our life. Um, just, you know, just thinking of those two examples and specifically around Good Friday, right? The, the day that Jesus is murdered. Right. That is an amazing space for sitting in our collective grief. Um, that time between Good Friday and Easter Sunday is really a time, it should be, a time for us to really sit in that unknown of right. what do we do now that this person is no longer with us. And the Good Friday services that I've been to often have a, a feeling of lamentation as part of them. The good ones have. Yes. Anyway. And I remember one I went to when I was in seminary, and I will say seminary had the best worship experiences that I've ever been to. It really made it hard to go to any after just because there was so much thoughtfulness that went into them. But this one, we sat in complete darkness, and someone started singing, Sometimes I Feel Like a Motherless Child. Mm. And I just remember being like, whoa, yeah. Like, that is Mm. the feeling of just being alone and there was something very bonding about being in that grief you know like we could all connect to that for different reasons and I think there is that connection to there's a shared story of grief that we have as a faith community and we can connect it to our own you know death and pain and loss in those moments so those are some of the ways that I think our faith communities can honor grief and death and dying um you know, both in the immediate of a particular moment of loss, but also just throughout the liturgical years, part of the rhythms of of the church seasons. Yeah. Wow. So there's a lot of things you said that I want to <laughs> think about. So the blue Christmas idea first, I'm going to look up one of those, see if there's one in my area for the holidays. My mom is already starting to talk about how the holidays are going to be hard for her this year. Mm -hmm. I don't think – I mean, it's obvious. She lost both her parents at the beginning of this year, and I think it's going to be hard. And so I'm going to look for a blue Christmas service or something like that. I bet some denomination will offer something like that around, around here. So thanks for just lifting that up. Also about, you were mentioning the um, Good Friday service. So you just reminded me, when I was about 13, I remember participating as a reader in a Shadows of the Cross service. Did you ever do one of those? Like Stations of the Cross? Stations of the Cross. Maybe that's what, maybe it's not called Shadows of the Cross. Maybe it's called Stations of the Cross. (laughs) Or maybe it's both. But it's, um, it walks through the different stages of the death of Jesus as told through, I think it's the book of John in the Bible. So maybe it's Stations of the Cross. Okay. But it's this very contemplative service where with each stage, the lights dim more and more until, like you said, we were sitting in darkness. And what I remember most from that service was this idea of not turning away from the death and the suffering, not rushing to the joy of Easter without first witnessing the pain of Good Friday. And I think that is so important. That was really powerful for me at 13, I think. I mean, there was also this heavy dose of your sin caused this suffering. Oh, <laughs> so oh yeah, just that small part. You know, you know, there's that bit. But if you could get past that, 
it was also this feeling of suffering and death is part of life and we can sit together in this truth, in the darkness and the discomfort, and it's going to be okay. And we can do it together. I, I remember that lesson. And getting back to what you mentioned about churches being good at setting up systems and teams for helping families through death and grief. Okay, that was definitely part of my experience. I was so touched by the way that my family's church community showed up to support our physical needs in that immediate aftermath. There was so much food (laughs) everywhere. And it's a stereotype for a reason. But people kept coming by with casseroles. And after the burial, my family's church provided a beautiful sit-down meal of comfort food for our whole extended family that had come from out of town for the service. They set up beautiful tables with flower arrangements in the church community hall, you know. Especially after my grandmother's funeral, we were just so exhausted from the past three months of the up and down of everything. And, you know, there there was just this sense that the church was in it with us. That was really beautiful. And I know that people came by to visit my grandmother after my grandpa died, um, just to sit with her and talk with her. And she really appreciated that. So when I look back at everything, I'm realizing that there's a pattern here of what helped me the most, especially in those early days of grieving, but it was having my humanity acknowledged and cared for and witnessed by the pastors who came to the hospital, by the folks who came by with food, the people who provided the meal after the burial, the folks that just came by to sit, you know, people like you who just texted me to say, hey, I'm thinking about you and being able to cry in front of people or be quiet in front of people, just being able to be human with other humans. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That is what brought me the most comfort in those early days. Does that make sense? It does. And death is such a huge part of our life experience. I mean, it's Mm -hmm. just as big as as giving birth, you know, and it it ought Mm. to be a time when people come and just care for you and don't expect anything in return and just Mm. don't try to change anything about whatever your process is. It's, It's messy and loud and painful and people's presence can be really affirming because it's a way of them communicating to us without really having to say anything. What you are experiencing is normal when you're Mm -hmm. dealing with loss because I know sometimes grief really can be disorienting. We talked about that in our last episode. And so just being Mm -hmm. held by people to kind of hold that space for us that we can be disoriented, like they can hold that space steady for us and really support us so that we can fall apart which is really painful and so necessary for the grief process. And I'm glad I could help in some small way to be in that network of people holding that space for you because you need and deserve that. Well, you definitely were. And I'm glad you mentioned, you know, how important it is not to try to change the way somebody is grieving or processing because that's when I think about the things that were less helpful, it has to do with that honestly, because what I found less meaningful, and I feel bad saying this because I know that folks mean well, but often the things that people said, the words people use when they thought they were giving comfort or they were trying to say something wise or say something hopeful or something, all of that rubbed me the wrong way and was sometimes just straight up 
hurtful. There was just so many platitudes. Mm-hmm. At least they aren't in pain anymore. Yes, I'm glad they're no longer in fear or in pain. At least they're together in heaven again. That's the one that got me. I am not comforted by the idea of my grandparents being together again in heaven. I am in pain because they are not here. Mm -hmm. Especially when my grandmother died. This was the hardest one. I heard over and over from people that I should be comforted by the fact that she's where she wants to be now with my grandpa in heaven. But listen, I was with her when the doctors told her she was dying that she wasn't going to recover. And trust me when I say that was not how she saw things. Mm. That was not how she was thinking in those last weeks. And so to have people tell me, you know, she's at peace now because she's with your grandpa. It, it put me in this position of having to hold my tongue or lose it on someone. It was horrible. And I know that this sounds selfish maybe, but I was really looking forward to getting to know my grandma again Mm -hmm. on the other side of losing my grandpa. And I feel robbed of that. You are. And so maybe this is another topic for another episode, but I don't really believe in heaven, not as a place we go when we die anyway. So this idea Uh. of they're together in heaven – it's so problematic on so many levels. Like, I just have to interject yeah. and say it It also is this idea that we prioritize our romantic relationship over everybody else as if, like, that is yes. the most important to you and not other people yes. in your life. And it oversimplifies death as this thing that once you're on the other side of is somehow, like, oh, I'm getting more into the soul now, but somehow is pain-free for that person. Not physically, but, like... Haven't you heard of people from the other side, like, desperately trying to communicate back to their loved ones who are left behind? Like, it's not that simple. I think that, I think that there's, I've heard it described as, like, when souls come into the body, there's rejoicing that happens, and there's also sadness, because there's always separation. Like, we're never truly Mm. always unified with all of the people that we love, or all of the souls at the same time. Like, we're always longing for home in one way or for family in one way. And so I think even that description is maybe not accurate, but also beyond that is just let's center the person who's grieving and like (sighs) what you you need (laughs) and not putting it in terms of the person who's gone, but like, how are you being impacted? What is it that you need to hear or be just listened to, right? Right. It's our own just discomfort with other people's pain because we don't like feeling pain. So we're trying to say something to alleviate the pain because we're scared of our own pain. And and to make them stop having pain in front of us. As if that's going to happen, <laughs> yeah. as if there's as anything if. anyone can say. Yes. It reminds me of this Kate Bowler quote from her book, Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved. Yeah. I know you've talked about this on the podcast before, but I just read this around the time that my grandmother was dying. And it it meant a lot to me in that time. But she says, a lot of Christians like to remind me that heaven is my true home, which makes me want to ask them if they would like to go home first. <laughs> and I just... That's how it felt to me was just this sort of spiritual bypassing, I guess. That's yes. what you call it, of this look on the bright side or, you know, they're they're in their, their true home and their true bodies now. Uh, that kind of idea that 
what's happening here on this planet, on this earth right now is somehow less important. And that was really, it was just tough. Instead, what I needed was for people to just witness Mm -hmm. our suffering. This is so heavy and so hard and I'm sorry and I'm here. That's all I needed. Even I can't imagine what this must feel like. I'm sorry you're going through this. Like if you don't know what to say, say that. I don't know what to say. I'm mm-hmm. so sorry. I'm here. And just like you said, it's. I think it's all about the discomfort that we have with people's pain, not being able to fix things. We're, you know, we just want to rush to the solution and fix it as though pain and suffering are a problem, as though grief is a problem to be fixed and not a, mm-hmm. just a normal experience of, of being human. And I think it just speaks to our discomfort with mystery mm-hmm. in general. We've got to have answers. We've got to have certainty. And a lot of us are just not spiritually or emotionally equipped to support people in this way. Um, I don't know. I try not to hold that against folks, but it <laughs> that was a hard time. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I was just thinking about how what we often feel is like awkwardness. And mm-hmm. awkwardness is a really small price to pay when you're in the presence of someone who's grieving and in loss. Sure. So <laughs> yes. It's okay to feel awkward and to say, and to say, I don't know what to say. I don't have words. Yeah. I love you. I'm here. I can be with you. Maybe offering specific things sometimes can help someone grieving. Like instead of saying, let me know what you need. It's like, yes, here are some things that I could offer you. Would any of these be helpful? Um, yep. You know, just trying to take some of the thinking work for people who yep. can then just be. And this is really something I learned when I was volunteering in the abortion clinic because my presence was so awkward. I was so awkward. Mm. I was uncomfortable <laughs> being in a medical center. Um, I didn't yeah. know these people. And I realized I could just like be there and be awkward. And that was enough. Just my presence was enough, yeah. even though. I didn't have anything I could say, and I just needed to be there. And sometimes people who are grieving just need someone to sit with them. And I was thinking mm-hmm. about the Jewish ritual of sitting Shiva, which I did some research about because I, I knew roughly what it was, but I hadn't really studied some of the details about it. And I think it's beautiful, and probably all of us should do some version of this. It's a week-long period in which the morning people gather together after the death of a loved one. And all of their religious services during that time are done in their home because mm. the, the people mourning are not expected to have to leave their house at all during that time. <laughs> yeah. Right? Like, you don't want to go anywhere. And some people even mm-hmm. cover their mirrors because the focus is on the grieving and not how they look. So there's no expectation that you get dressed or, like, put on makeup or do your hair or anything. It's really just about being in in your grief. And people sometimes sit on these low benches or chairs as a representation of their sadness of feeling low, which I also just love that. Wow. And some of the things you were describing about the churches, it's the same sort of thing. People come and visit and bring food because morning people are not supposed to work during this time, kind of like a Sabbath. And then at the end, there's a ritual in which the morning people go outside for the first time and take a walk. And I, I love that because it's the yeah. ritualization of doing all the things that we tend to do when we grieve, you know, we not work, don't get dressed, not leave our house, not make food, not care about what we look like. And I just love how that has been made into a re- religious practice 
that grieving is part of what it means to live into your tradition. It's not something separate from, it's part of being faithful is that you go through this grief ritual together. Mm, That's like the opposite of what I was just describing of the spiritual bypassing, the rushing past, what our Mm -hmm. bodies need, what our human selves need in that moment. And it's really embracing and designing the ritual around what our bodies and our souls are like naturally going through at that time. I love that. I've heard of sitting Shiva before, but I didn't, I didn't know that that's what the rituals were, were honoring that natural grieving process. That's so beautiful. (laughs) You're right. I think we really should all do some version of this. And I guess we probably are all doing some version of this if we allow ourselves Mm -hmm. to experience the grief and not try to rush and push past it. And, you know, it's a reminder that grief doesn't have to be dealt with in isolation. I think there's this idea that we have to be strong and hide our grieving. And that just, you know, I know everybody grieves in a different way, but I think now would be a good time to maybe talk about healing and integrating our collective grief. You know, I feel like I have a good handle on what it will mean for me personally to heal and to live into my grief over my grandparents but what I have less less of a grasp on I think is when it comes to the collective grief Mm -hmm. that is just going to be a a bigger challenge for me the stuff around COVID around the loss of Roe everything that we lifted up in our last episode about the ways that people are grieving right now um, things happening in the collective and so I'm still feeling really lost about what healing's going to look like. You know what I mean? There's no model that I yeah, have lived through really. I mean, I can think of I can think of some time, some services that I've been to that have been specific to a collective event and not mm-hmm. the the loss of a loved one in particular. Um, but that has felt very piecemeal and sort of random in terms of whether or not a community creates ritual around something. And lately there's been so many, how do you Mm -hmm. even keep up with, you would have to have one every hour for all the horrible things that are going on. And that's probably always been true. Maybe it's just the magnification of so many of them lately. It, it feels like it's never ending. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned that it's this is really tragic. I remember going to a candlelight vigil held by my church after the Columbine shooting when we were in high school Mm -hmm. and I think that was 1999. I don't know that we're still doing a candlelight vigil for every mass shooting because they're just so frequent. I mean, it would just be like a nonstop. Yeah. I, so I think I suspect that this is going to require some listening and learning on my part, especially because as a white American Christian woman. I'm part of the culture that historically is the oppressor, often the cause of so much suffering. And something I've heard a lot from people of color in my life is that collective grief is a common experience for communities who've been facing oppression for centuries. So some of us who hold a lot of privilege might be feeling collective grief for the first time. And I think honestly, That was something that hit me so hard in 2020 was finally the veil was lifted for me. COVID and the murder of George Floyd 
I was part of the collective suffering probably for the first time in my life, if I'm being honest. And it took me a long time to understand that that collective grief was real and physical. It's part of me. I'm part of it. And it's not probably ever going to go away. So that means it's going to require a complete mindset shift. Integrating collective grief is going to mean figuring out what is the place that this grief occupies in my life. How will I live and be whole knowing that I can't go back in time to a place when I wasn't affected by or chose to be ignorant of collective grief and pain? So that, I don't know if any of that resonates with you. Yeah, I think even recognizing that collectively white people were not aware of the collective grief is itself its own form of injury. And I think Mm. we're probably tapping into even before this time is just because we are all interconnected. And even if we were not aware of, I think there's like historical collective grief about what it means to be the legacy of white people who have committed so many atrocities against so many people. Like that stuff is there. And I think there's like healing that needs to happen among white people too. And I don't mean healing and like we need all everybody's attention on us. I mean that we really have to reckon with what that means, being part of that ancestry. And maybe, maybe now is the opportunity to start doing Mm -hmm. that, that work. It's not going to be easy. It's definitely going to be painful. And I think that there could be, some true freedom, collective freedom on the other side of it. But I think there are a lot of people who still aren't tapping into it. And that makes me feel sad too. Yeah, I think you're right about that. And I think in the, for me, a big part of 2020 that was difficult for me is I felt like I couldn't look away. I couldn't turn away from the suffering that was happening because it would, if I did, it It was just sort of underscoring my complicity in it. And so I felt like I just had to keep taking it all in to the point where it was hurting me. And I, I struggled with how do I hold both? How do I move on and live my life, maintain accountability, yet can continue to witness suffering, but also take care of myself? Like, are we allowed to do that? That is, a, a big question. And I was reading this article in Yes Magazine recently that I thought was really helpful. It's called How to Process Our Collective Grief, uh, which we'll link in the show notes. It's written by therapist and organizer Gabe Torres. And I really like what she has to say here about the concept of oscillation, like an oscillating fan, which she describes as the back and forth movement in processing grief. She says, and I'm quoting from the article, Because of how finite our human bodies are, it's not sustainable for us to be exposed to pain or stay in it for long periods of time or in high frequency. In oscillation, we stay present enough with the grief to confront, reflect, and talk about it, but not to the point where we're too overwhelmed or overcome by it that it debilitates us or causes physiological ailments, inflammation, extreme discomfort. Similarly, we ought to avoid 
overstaying on the other side of the spectrum of desensitization or disconnection from the collective trauma, leaving us apathetic or numb to our collective responsibility to look after one another and disrupt systems and cycles of violence. So what I take from that is that healing is a balance of holding both at the same time, of moving back and forth between the suffering and the joy, and it's probably just a lifelong journey of learning. She also talks about acknowledging the realities and limitations of our own bodies and listening to our bodies when they tell us, you need to turn off the news. You need to close social media. You've had enough of this painful content today. It's okay, and it's time to rest. In this way, I think embodiment is crucial to our healing because tuning into our bodies and using our senses is part of staying in our humanity listening to what we need in that moment. And this is true for me because I know that when I treat my body like a machine or a robot or disconnect from myself in that way, I stay in a state of dysfunction. And that is not a healing path for me. And I had to work to really undo that over the last couple years. So the last thing that she mentions is about checking in with ourselves regularly and checking in with our communities regularly to hold space with each other. So what are you thinking about healing in this way? Do you see it as an individual pursuit? Who are you reading? Who are your teachers in this space? Don't you think so much of healing in general is just about confronting binary ways of thinking and yes. saying that they're not <laughs> true? Because binaries, sure. binaries are so constraining and are so such lies honestly yeah and when we subscribe to them even when we think it's because it's the right thing to do we end up harming ourselves and honestly harming ourselves is nothing for anyone's liberation so I I really want to read that because I think it would be helpful for me too um when I was reflecting on this a book that came to mind and it's not specific to grief but more about the cycles of life in general which grief is part of, um, is called Wintering, The Power of Rest and Retreat in Difficult Times by Catherine May. Have you seen this book? I gave this book as a gift to someone who had put it on their wish list, but I have not read it. So I'm, I was really excited to see you mention that here. It's really comforting uh, reflection on seasons of our lives that are marked mm. by stagnation, of needing to turn inward, and of not producing. And there's this beautiful line where she says, winter is not the death of the life cycle, but it's crucible. Mm. And I think we have really collectively been living in this winter time for several years with maybe some spring breaking through perhaps uh, prematurely, like we've got a few warm days and then we're eager to to sprout again. Um, Mm. And then in other ways, not. I think in many ways, we are still in very much like a winter time. And I love this concept because the idea is that underneath the wintering, beyond the wintering is the trusting and the hope of spring, of something new, of renewal, of the joy that somehow, even when it looks like the last possible thing that could ever happen, given the circumstances, spring does somehow return. And I think that that's an exercise of surrender. And trusting and allowing for the times of rest, which I think often accompany grief, like they it's sort of forced on us because we are incapable oftentimes of grieving, of of like being productive during grief. 
that yeah. we we go into those winter seasons. And as you were talking before about the collective grief thing, I was thinking specifically about during COVID when we were meeting with other CEOs and people were talking about how for some of their employees, working was a coping mechanism. And so we didn't want to take mm-hmm. work away from people. But we never stopped to think about how that's really problematic, yeah. that the, that coping mechanism of resisting the yeah. grief, of resisting the stagnation of the winter causes a lot of suffering, too. Not allowing yeah. for that resting time, for that for that time where we don't we don't make ourselves be productive. And so in my public work, I've been talking a lot about the need for healing with regard to what's going on um, with abortion access right now Mm -hmm. and how we start to identify how the anti-abortion movement has harmed all of us. Frankly, we've all been, well, because it's connected to white Christian nationalism in particular, but we've all been traumatized by the way that this movement has been weaponizing Christianity and using it as a tool of oppression really successfully for a long time. Yep. And I think there's specifically a lot of need for healing for people who've experienced abortion, people who provide abortion care, and really all of us who are paying attention. And I just think that no matter what we're healing from, our individual healing and collective healing are very intertwined. And maybe we'll talk about this concept more, but one of the spiritual teachings I've come to treasure is the idea that when we heal ourselves, our healing can actually heal our past, meaning the people from our ancestral line and heal the future for the generations to come after us. Like that time isn't linear when, when we're talking about this kind of soul healing work that actually can impact others who we are connected to on, on either side. And I think that that's, Really beautiful. And if you will indulge me, this is my favorite story to talk about this. And I might have shared it on the podcast before, but the story from the Gospels where the hemorrhaging woman who's been bleeding for 12 years reaches out for Jesus and is healed. You have, but please talk about it in this context. I want to talk about it in this context because it speaks to the collective healing. So yes, there's the physical healing that she initiates, which is very powerful because Jesus is unaware of her. She reaches out, just her reaching out and touching, she gets the healing that she needs. And that's really amazing because it's unlike most healing stories in the Gospels um, where Jesus Mm -hmm. is the one initiating and is aware of the need for healing and provides it. So that's really powerful. But then when he says, who touched me, meaning like who, who engaged me in this way, and she is terrified because she really wasn't supposed to be in this crowd because of her bleeding. She tells Jesus her whole truth. And I think that there's something very healing for her individually in telling her whole truth, which was probably very painful. But also, I think collective healing happens in the truth telling because other people are hearing what she's saying. And some of those might have been the perpetrators, the people who oppressed her, and then other people like her who needed healing. And I really think that there's this collective moment of healing and hearing her story. And so I think that's why story is so important to me, because there is something about holding space for someone's story, like you're talking about when people just were there witnessing your Mm -hmm. pain, that we do heal in that way. It might not feel like it in the moment, but there is something really beautiful about it in the long term of just having spaces to do that. And it means that we have to create those spaces and there's not enough of them that are dedicated to this individual and collective healing work. And it's one of my biggest um, soapboxes, is that the right word? 
<laughs> Maybe. Soapbox, <laughs> is that we need to be doing this better in faith communities yeah. for, for all kinds of losses and healing that needs to happen. But I think specifically right now around our reproductive lives. Oh, man, I agree with that so much. And I think especially referring to like spaces where collective healing can take place and also story. So it makes me think about COVID. Like, I don't understand why we aren't doing more to honor those we've lost or even to tell the story. Because after 9-11, immediately there were talks of building a monument. Immediately there was a narrative, for better or worse. <laughs> there, was a, there was a narrative about what happened that day. And at the very least, it highlighted the efforts of the rescuers of the folks from the towers. And it feels to me like we're really... I, I really hope that we can get to a point where we can build some kind of monument or tell some bigger story. I think an annual day of mourning would go a long way toward helping us acknowledge what we've been through the last couple of years in the U.S. We're at a million COVID deaths and counting. Personally, I would love a place to visit to take Avery one day because he's been so young through this experience that I, I don't think he's going to remember it, to be totally honest. Um, but I'd love to take him one day to show him, here, look, these are the names of everyone we lost. These are the names of some of the first responders, the frontline medical professionals who died helping to save lives. This is what it was like in 2020. Here's the story of how countries across the world came together to share research and make vaccines. That gives me chills just thinking about it. Where is that story? Where is that place we can go? And I read that there is a movement called Marked by COVID that is working to get a nationally recognized day of mourning and a federal monument, but they're still raising money. You can go to their website and contribute and see how you might be able to help because right now it's just up to local communities to decide how they want to honor COVID. And in some places, the families of loved ones of folks they lost to COVID have been working to build small monuments or memorials in their towns. And it just feels like, you know, living in a place where we pretend COVID really never happened. I mean, truthfully, Mississippi is acting like not only is it over, but that it never happened. <laughs> That the last couple of years were just a fever dream. <laughs> it it makes me feel disconnected from my own experience. Like gaslighted, I guess, is an overused word or way of putting it. But um, it does. It, it makes me feel like I'm cut off from my own memories, my own experience, and the the bigger story of what we all, I know, we all went through together. I was there. <laughs> right. Right. And there's also just thinking about future generations. You know, it took this. Yeah. It took this virus to realize that. I mean, I didn't. Had you ever heard of the Spanish flu before or during World War One? Like, I had never heard of a that. little. Right. And so part of the problem, too, is that by not creating yes. spaces that are dedicated, we then forget what happened. Yep. And so when it happens again, we don't have collective memory of what we did wrong and what we did right. I think that yeah. that's even more terrifying to me is the idea that 
we're not going to take any of the lessons from this and, and provide them to generations down the line who can who can act differently than we did. I think that that's even a bigger moral failure of our country. You know, that's why like the 9-11 thing, it was about war. Yep. <laughs> it was about war mm-hmm. and like we're not going to let someone invade us again. We can hold mm-hmm. on to that value, but not we're going to care for each other collectively and not harm each other like how beautiful would that be if if we created spaces that were dedicated to that um Mm -hmm. it says a lot about what we value and what we don't and i think specifically around covid that we don't want to confront the the realities of death at all like we don't want to we don't want to acknowledge that it happens at all and i was listening to the on being episode that you recommended a few episodes back with adrian marie brown Oh, good. Yeah. It was really good. I want to listen to it again. And she talked about death a lot. And she actually said her unspoken thought right now is that human beings might not make it as a species. And I was like, Mm -hmm. yes. Like, I actually have that same, Mm -hmm. that same thought. And, you know, even just going back to the micro, though, like this acknowledgement that we resist endings and losses and deaths of all kinds collectively, like just the sort of immortality that we have of our, I don't know, even of our own physical bodies, even though it's not logical, it just creates so much unnecessary suffering because inevitably yeah. loss happens. And then we resist the processes that we need to go through to move through it. And again, just that concept of surrender, which is a gross word for me. I really have to struggle Mm. with it because of the connotation Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. I had of it when I was growing up in my, in my evangelical church, but I'm starting to really Mm -hmm. embrace it more because it's really allowing the flow of life and death and the beauty and the pain to just be, to just let it be because it's coming just like that death card we talked about. (laughs) Yeah. We can resist it and cause unnecessary suffering. Are we just allow it? to be. I'm so glad you listened to that on being episode. I loved how she talked about nonprofit organizations and justice movement work as having endings and those endings being important because they fertilize the soil for new growth in the work. And it helps me remember That's part of why I left Faith in Women, which is something I'm also grieving. So this is helping me through this grief time of my life because I knew that my burnout was causing my contribution to the work to become stale. Mm. And the longer I stayed in that state, it was going to be actively harmful to the work overall. And I Mm. felt like clinging to my role and not making space for new people and new ideas was only going to hurt Faith in Women. It was only going to hurt our relationships with other organizations. You know, in the long term, you're so right. There's this flow to life. There's a pattern that shows up in nature, in community, in our own lives. And surrendering to that flow is ultimately a path to wholeness. So I think this might be a good place to wrap up. <laughs> I want to thank our listeners for coming along with us on our journey through grief. Is there anything else, Katie, that you would like to say before we end things? Yeah, to make an awkward, awkward transition, I was just thinking about my own kind of connecting to the nature cycle right now, which I'm learning that getting grounded to the earth is really important for me because all of my astrological mm. signs are air and fire with the exception of my sun sign, which is water. But like, 
very much in the like ethereal, not a whole lot. I have no earth signs at all. And so I found, yes. And so really just being with the physical earth has been really grounding and important for me. And I've started growing plants. I'm becoming one of those people. I actually oh, just, good. I had to cut Welcome. back my, my orchid <laughs> that lost all of its beautiful flowers. Right. And like now it looks like it's not producing. It looks and like so a I stick. To, I have to trust mm-hmm. that it'll come back. Um, and I also tried this really cool meditation called earth pulsing, where you actually imagine the heartbeat of the earth and then connect it to your oh. own heartbeat, which is Ooh. really beautiful and grounding. I can connect. I will put a link in the show notes to that because it's on YouTube. Really, cool. really cool. And then just more practically, every day I've added early in the morning, I work out and I've added this one mile walk through a wooded path through like right by our house. Um, because sometimes mm. I wasn't even going outside because it's so hot and I work from home. I was never going yep. out into nature. And so I do this one mile walk where I'm connecting to nature and I see there's so many bunnies right now and rabbits mm. and there's a bluebird that's always in the same spot and like the sun shining, shining through the trees. And it's really helped me feel grounded and connected to the earth. And I really hope I'll keep up with it through the other seasons too. Cause just like we're talking about kind of through the, seeing the beauty of each stage, even when it's not the vibrant green of summer, um, it really has been a way for me to feel kind of more connected to the earth. I love that. Ugh. So thank you for sharing that. I will wrap us up with this Instagram post from Black Liturgies, which is authored by Cole Arthur Riley. I think we've talked about her on the podcast before. It's about the relationship between beauty, which you were just talking about. I love that. And lament. Mm. So I'll read a bit of it, but you can also follow at Black Liturgies, all one word on Instagram and check it out. So this is what the post says. Sorrow is not a destroyer of beauty. It's okay to look up from the debris long enough to catch your breath on something beautiful. God of tension and beauty, we will not become numb to suffering. It seems there is so much at stake in the world and in ourselves that to look away would be callous neglect. But sustain us, God. Give us the gift of the beautiful as we try to survive the tragedies of this world. Awaken us to the artists and creatives in our midst, those whose songs and paintings and words and films can hold the seams of our souls together when under the harshest duress. Awaken us to the stars, the snow falling, the smell of rain, that even when we find ourselves too exhausted to create, we might be held by the beauty of your own creation. Remind us that violence and oppression cannot conquer beauty itself, that our love, our lament, our rage are each in their own way messengers of beauty in an aching world. Inhale, I resist the tyranny of despair. Exhale, my soul awakens to beauty. Oh, that's lovely. What a gift. She's so amazing. I know Seriously. she's such a gift. The yeah. fact that words keep flowing is astonishing uh-huh. to me with all that's going on and talk about our collective healing. I think that her yes. work is absolutely contributing to that. We'll maybe we'll link to this specific post too so yeah. folks can find it. And also if you're not following us on our Instagram account, Kindred's Podcast, we're gonna start doing a little bit more content that's curated from our um different episodes. So we've got a carousel yeah. up now that's kind of a mini guide to grief with some of the concepts from our first episode about grief. And we'll probably, we're thinking of doing another one that is tied to just thematic 
things of around grief that are speaking to us. So be on the lookout for that. And we thought a natural place to go for our next episode will be to talk mm-hmm. about the afterlife. Yes. <laughs> After all this death talk. And I have a feeling that that's going to be a multi-part conversation too, because we have lots of opinions about this. Yes, <laughs> and we have lots, lots of thoughts. <laughs> So that is our plan for our next episode. Thanks for being on this journey of grief with us. And we hope that you are finding healing in your own life too. We're glad to be in community with you and we will talk with you then. Talk to you then. Thanks for listening. You can find us on our website, kindredspodcast.com. That's kindreds with an S. Or you can send us an email at team at kindredspodcast.com. You can also follow me, Katie, on Twitter at Katie Zay. That's Katie with an E-Y-Z-E-H. Please send us your thoughts, ideas, and questions. We'd love to hear from you. 